I'm Toby Haydoke. Insert pithy pun or Doctor Who quote here. My next guest has a few doctors under her belt. She's spoken before about some of the stories she was involved with, but not all. So we knock a fair few off my list in today's session, which was conducted via Skype, so the usual caveats about sound quality apply. My thanks to Jim Bradshaw from BAFTA for facilitating my initial contact with today's fascinating interviewee. Okay, and three, two, one. Well, we're at the mercy of Skype again, um, which is which is great, and it's a great honour to speak to somebody uh, who is involved in a number of my favourite Doctor Who stories. So I'm going to ask you to say who you are and why you're talking to me about Doctor Who. My name is Fiona Cumming, and I started on Doctor Who in 1966. I was an AFM. I was very new to the department. And at that time, you just went on to whatever program you were given. So in 66, I worked with Bill Hartnell on Massacre. Uh, in 67, I moved on to Highlanders with Pat Troughton. 69, by that time, I was a production assistant. Uh, and I was doing Seeds of Death with, um, again with Pat Troughton. And in 72, still as a PA, production assistant in those days they called it, um, I did The Mutants with Chris Barry. Then there was a long gap from 72 till, it must have been into the beginning of the 80s. Uh, by that time I'd become a director, and so I worked with Peter Davison, uh, did the actual transmogrification of uh, Tom into... Peter, and uh, directed Cash Revolver, Snake Dance, Enlightenment, and Planet of Fire. So I always feel that I did, I worked with the first five doctors, uh, and it was a very important part of my life. And that's not bad going, I mean, to take us back, back to uh, the, the massacre in Hartnell, the curious thing is... Um you were working for one of the other very few female directors uh, of Doctor Who, Paddy Russell. Absolutely. Uh, was, Paddy was probably one of the first people, I was AFMing then, and she was one of the first people that I thought, I could do that um, if, if I was very, very lucky. But it was actually Hugh David, whom I worked with on The Highlanders, uh, he and I joined BBC together in 64, and we worked on a program called <coughs> Swizzlewick, and he was directing, and he was explaining something to me, and I thought, why is he, why is he telling me this, I don't need to know it, and he looked at me and said, you're not going to remain an AFM for the whole of your career, you know, uh, you can... You can do a lot better than that. So it was a combination of Hugh and Paddy that made me think, OK, let's get on with it. Uh, the curious thing about Hugh David is that when I've spoken to people who've perhaps not been as subsumed in Doctor Who, but who worked at BBC, and they oh, well, of course, Hugh David was an amazing director. I said, well, yeah, he did a couple of Doctor Who's. And they go, did he really? Because they, they seem to have the idea that, that, that Hugh was so good, if you like, that he, w he wouldn't have done a Doctor Who. So what was it about Hugh that, that marked him out as being this director that everybody 
um, seems to have been slightly in awe of. I think he started off as an actor. He he was the original knight errant, and then there was a scheme to bring people in. I think they took one or two people in um, from outside to direct. And as I say, Swizzlewick was the first thing, which was very run of the mill. And so you progress through. I worked with him at a later stage on a classic serial called Wives and Daughters. And he was learning the craft of being behind the camera instead of the star in front of it. And um, what, what do you remember of um, the, the contrast between um, the, the, the first three Doctors that you worked with, not as a director, um, William, Patrick and, and John? How, how were their approaches different and what, what sort of personalities were they? Uh, Bill, by 66, uh, had acquired this reputation uh, which was of somebody who was quite irascible and, uh, you know, could fly off the handle. And so, as a very young ASM, you approached him with fear and trepidation. And I, he had a, a stick, a carved stick, which always got lost. And at one point we said, could we take it into the office each time? No, 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 it always had to go back into the prop cage. And sure enough, when I arrived to set up on the morning, the thing that came out looked as though it was from the black and white minstrel show, um, a cane with not even silver on the top, instead of this rather beautiful thing. So I thought, how am I going to uh, cope with this? And so thought the best way to do was to approach him before we started rehearsal. And I I took it up, this other cane behind my back, and said, Mr. Hartnell, I'm terribly sorry. Uh, we seem to have mislaid your own cane at the moment, but would you mind using this one? And before I could say anything, he blew his top completely. And uh, I was so frightened, I waited until he took half a breath and said, Meantime, as loudly as as he had been shouting at me. And uh, he looked at it and looked at me and said, but of course, my dear. And you were just left thinking, oh, God. <laughs> um, and then Pat, you went on to Pat. Pat was my favourite. Uh, I had worked with him on um, Dr. Finley's casebook. And he, he played a... a another doctor who was quite idiosyncratic and he had such a sense of humour and he, he was just marvellous to work with and could always see the fun in things. In Highlanders we were working out at Frenchman's Pond and at one point a pit had to be excavated uh, so that as the marauders were approaching, they would fall into it. It was a like a, a human bear pit, and the prop boys had worked for ages, and uh, somebody, I can't remember who it was, it could even have been me, just as they got it finished, went forward to retrieve something and went into it, of course, breaking the whole thing up, and Pat 
celibate, um, instead of saying noises like, you know, this is going to cost us a whole half hour or anything, it, it was just, it was fun to him. And he, he always approached it very professionally, but determined to get the most enjoyment out of the whole thing. Uh, I, I loved working with him. I don't remember very much about Seeds of Death, um, and that was also Pat. Yes, well, that was you sort of spanned his tenure because the Highlanders were very early and the Seeds of Death was towards the end, but I understand he was getting a bit frayed and, and, and tired of the part. Uh, uh-huh. and, uh, and in the Seeds of Death, of course, you had to wrangle uh, Doctor Who monsters for the first time, uh, yes. Forest Warriors. Uh, was that the, was that when the Warriors were? Yeah, yeah, that's with yeah Seeds of Death with Michael Ferguson directing Terry Scully, Ronald Lee Hunt, big green reptilian monsters, ah. lots of foam and exploding balloons. I've actually got a picture of myself with a monster from Ealing, um, and they were they really were horrendously uncomfortable costumes to wear, and it was my job to make sure that the the monsters got into these shells as uh, early enough to be on set at the right moment, and it, it, you practically had to get them in and out with a tin opener. <laughs> well, and then you had some very good monsters in The Mutant with uh, with John Pertwee and Chris Barry and, uh, and, yeah. and a dress location. <coughs> yes, Chiselhurst was marvellous. Um, it it was it was very uh, untimely in that once you got down below into the caves, you lost all sense of time, and so you had to keep checking with your watch as to when you should allow everybody to get out into the open air and have a cup of tea or a lunch break because it was timeless down there, um, and. It, it was quite enervating. Do I mean enervating? No, de-enervating, that would be. Um, and I, I, I had bronchitis at the time, and so nearly lost the whole of the float <coughs> because uh, we, we came out and I fell into bed instead of going to dinner that night and realised that I had the float of about £600 with me instead of having deposited it in the uh, hotel safe. And in the morning, I I just stuck it under my pillow and thought, oh, I can't bother going downstairs. And in the morning, I went downstairs and there was consternation all around because one of the people in the bar had made off with all the takings and the contents of the safe. So I was extremely glad that I didn't have to uh, explain to the BBC how I had managed to lose £600. Um, John was so good. He came out of the actual caves one day, which which had an entrance that you couldn't actually use in the filming and he came out absolutely drained, absolutely exhausted, looking forward to his cup of tea and about 30 local children from Chiswellhurst 
had heard that we were filming and they were all lined up with their autograph books and jumping up and down and there he is. And I came out ahead of John and thought, oh, this poor man, and turned around to see a transformation. One minute he was exhausted and the next he'd seen these children and energy had just flowed into the veins and he was absolutely fabulous with them. It was as though they were the people that he wanted to see most in the world and I'm sure none of those children forgot him. But I took my hat off during for it. We then had to do the entrance to the cave in the middle of a field somewhere and there was a chalk cave uh, which housed a horse. Um, so the horse was taken out of the cave so that the technical boys could get in and lay their explosives. And Marion, who was the PA, discovered a little mouse. So managed to capture the mouse and walk the whole way across the field to the other side so that it wouldn't, uh, I suppose, die in the explosion. <laughs> and uh, we did the explosion, and as we were watching the smoke clearing, just before Chris said uh, cut, I suddenly realised there was a movement alongside me and there was a mouse charging back into his cave. Um, he was obviously the companion of the horse and he was not going to be separated from uh, his home, as it were. He was, a, I mean, he was a field mouse, but I think pictures exist of John with the little mouse on his shoulder. Oh, well, I, I might try and track the mouse down to these uh, podcasts. I don't think he's ever been interviewed before, so... <laughs> I gave him a name, which unfortunately I can't remember. Um, but I'm sure one of the others will probably remember. Oh, I bet there's probably some BBC paperwork, even. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, and so what? how come there was such a big gap then between you doing The Mutants and, and returning to the show uh, as a director? Well, I... Uh, was a staff at that time and it took me um, took about seven years to move through being a staff director and learning my side of it, my craft that side of it and in the meantime I, I worked on programs like Angels and Zed Cars as a director um, and various other directors. Uh, I did actually do a classic serial which was Master of Ballantrae but all the time I, I was still a self-director and it got to 1979 and there was always the threat if you were they wouldn't make any direct, uh, directors permanent in those days. They didn't want staff directors, so I was a staff production manager. And at that point, there was the danger that you would be pushed back to production managing for another director. And I knew that I'd, I'd been a very good production manager, and I didn't want to go back with a chip on my shoulder feeling, you know, I could do it better than him. Uh, about the director I was working with. So I decided 
1979 to go freelance in the April and started working up in Scotland with Omega Factor and Square Mile of Murder, another classic. Um, um, interspersed with doing freelance work with ITV and David Maloney offered me a couple of Blake Sevens and the author Tanneth Lee of it was it was Sarcophagus. Yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. Um she had written such a good script I thought she would be a cinch for Doctor Who and John Nathan Turner, who was a friend, um I sent him the finished script uh, the finished program of Sarcophagus to introduce him to Tanneth. He did actually commission a script from her, but I don't think it ever came to anything. And in the meantime, from that, he was looking around for somebody to do Castrobalba and uh, decided to try me out on that. Uh, there were no metal monsters in it. Uh, you know, it was fantasy. And so from then on, when fantasy things came up, like Snake Dance, and Enlightenment, and Planet of Fire, which relied more on non-monsters. Um, he, he thought I could handle them, and gave them to me to do, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And so, over the period of directing those four, I would be going away to work in Scotland on Take the High Road, or down to... Yorkshire to do Emmerdale um, and and becoming a freelance. One thing that I think marks your stories out that I particularly enjoy about them is that you you, you cast very high and there's a very you've got to always have very rich ensemble cast. So it, it, how how do you work with actors and did they take much persuading to do Doctor Who? Oh no. <laughs> um, I started off as an actor myself, and so I had to learn the technicalities of television. Um, and so my background was theatre, and I got to know a lot of actors through that. And then I worked on some very high-profile programmes within the BBC, uh, like the Palaces and the First Churchills. So I was working with very good actors. And I, w I would always prefer to go for the performance rather than the technical side of things. To me, if you're aware of the technicalities, then the balance is wrong. So if, if you do two takes, and one of them is technically not quite as good, but the acting is better. I'll always go for the acting one. And with the background knowledge of actors that I knew, I could rely on working with people whom, who would take a lot of the onus off the youngsters that you were having to give more time to. Um, Tegan 
hadn't done a lot of television by the time I worked with her. And it, it meant that you could rely on the established experienced actors. Um, and as for did they want to work on it, yes, because their credibility with their children went sky high when uh, they could come home and say to the offspring, I'm doing Doctor Who. Uh, there was never any bother about people saying that's beneath me or you know, anything. It, it was it was quite a cachet in the classic serials, as it probably still is, to to work on it. And it wasn't um, his the first one that he recorded, but it was nonetheless Peter Davison's debut story, um, Casper Belvis. So, did did you uh, have any input into the formulation of his character, and and how how was he finding his feet at that point? What you had to do was to keep saying. Um, the, the the actual grouping uh, has to be a new grouping. Uh, you must forget that you've already done two stories and you've learned your shortcuts and camaraderie. You, you've got to start from the very beginning. I, I had no input into his casting and I hadn't actually worked with him at all before, but Peter was a delight to work with. Uh, it it was a very very happy time um, over Casabelda. We were we were in the 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 hundred acre wood, Pooh's hundred acre wood, um, and the sun never stopped shining, which was absolutely wonderful. I can't remember what time of year it was filming, but I mean we've all on Doctor Who worked in. French and ponds when the rain is howling huh. around, um, and and that was just a funny, glorious time. Well, and it must have worked well because then you were brought back to do an, another um, show that's with a, a, another lyrical script, I would say, with some great characters and a brilliant cast again, um, which was Snake Dance, which again is not a sort of traditional monster story; it's more psychological. Absolutely. And there were two people who hadn't done television before in that um, Martin Clunes. Uh, that was his first job out of uh, drama college. And, uh, oh, I've lost his name. The boy who Jonathan, yeah, Jonathan Morris. Jonathan Morris. Uh, it, I cast him before he'd done anything else, but by the time we got to recording uh, he'd actually worked on something with Dougie uh, Canfield oh, oh yes that's it um, so again I needed people that I could rely on like Colette and John uh, so that you could concentrate on pointing out the, the ins and outs of scaling things down to a camera. And, and what, did the, what was it about Martin Clunes? I mean, did, that, did you have an idea that you were working with somebody that was going to go on to um, have the career well, that he's had? Yes. Um, in those days, Spotlight had uh, the, the male Great Big Book and the female Great Big Book, and they also had 
a much smaller one of the students who were due to come out of drama school that year. And I knew that Lon was such a loathsome character that the only way that you could make the whole thing feasible was to make him uh, this petulant, spoilt uh, boy who'd always been overindulged. And as I was flipping through, I suddenly, this face jumped out at me with these <coughs> wonderful Mick Jagger lips. <coughs> and I thought, uh, I'd like to meet him. And the minute he walked in the office door, again, he's got a glorious sense of the humour of life. Um, and and he, he brought a depth to Long that I think with a lesser actor uh, it would just have been the character would have been obnoxious but he actually gave him a humanity I don't know if he's ever forgiven me for the costume that he would, we put him into for the becoming but it, in context that costume was perfectly alright um, but the number of times it's been taken out as a clip and looked at uh, and it just looks outrageous I mean, way, way over the top. So I've, I haven't ever seen uh, Martin in the years since, and I don't know if uh, he's ever forgiven me for it. Well, it's the sort of thing that makes us Doctor Who fans furious. Actually, I, I would say the costume and all of the design on uh, Snake Dance is, is, a, is of a very high standard. It is. It certainly is. And the, the coherence of the the market and the design of the market and the the actual costumes and the hall of mirrors um, I, I was delighted with it I think uh, I think the costume and makeup and set design um, to get that cohesion with them is wonderful uh, it certainly happened in Castrovalva because the, there, the Persian look of the makeup and the roundness of the arches of the, the set and the, the roundness and curves of all the costumes, it just made a one rather than all fighting with each other. Well, you have to fight on your hands for the next uh, story because uh, Enlightenment was almost covered by a strike. Yeah, that uh, that was devastating because it was such a lovely script. Uh, Barbara, I think that was the only script that she did. Mm. It was a fantastic script. And originally I cast Peter Salas as the uh, striker and we did actually rehearse. Uh, I can't remember if we'd done any filming. Oh, yes. Yes, of course, we'd done the filming at Ealing, um, which was all above deck. Um, and then we went back to rehearse. And then we got the news that the strike had hit. And uh, Peter was no longer available. I think his next lot of uh, Last of the Summer Wine Thank you
um, had come up and he, he was lovely in rehearsal because again you were working with an actor that I'd actually worked with on Muslim Palaces Ian June Whitfield played a uh, husband and wife in the Palaces and I was able to observe at that point um, but again you were aware that you were working with somebody who had such a long established career and he walked in and uh, said now where do I sit and I said no Mr. Tallis you, you're actually standing here alongside the wheel and he looked at me and said I don't do standing parts <laughs> and I said well I'm terribly sorry but uh, as the captain of the ship, you don't sit down. And we just took it from there. He was, he was again... Uh, I've been so lucky to work with so many generous people. Uh, and he, he was beautifully generous. And then, of course, there was the news that he wouldn't be able to do it. And I went off in a totally different direction because I didn't want to didn't want to feel that I was doing it the same way and uh, Keith was a totally different striker and uh, I, I it's a lovely performance that I think stated. yes and and the, the relationship between Tegan and the smitten first officer uh, I thought I thought this whole business of the mind reading uh, works well. Yes, now there is a young actor that you, you plucked who didn't go on to have a career like um, Martin Coons, which I always thought was a shame, because I thought Christopher Brown did really good work. He did. Trust. He did. Um, I'd, I'd, had, I'd worked with somebody, an actor up in Scotland, who, who didn't actually blink. And... At one point, I said to him, could you make sure you blink sometime during that scene? And he said, why? And I said, because looking at it, I, w I would put you down as a murderer. And he fell about and, and promised to try to remember to blink. I think he was wearing contact lens and he was concentrating on not blinking. Um, so when I came to work with the people in uh, Enlightenment, to get this otherworldly feeling, uh, I, I tried to get this non-blinking thing in, which which was quite eerie. You also had to work with two uh, venerable and highly esteemed um, veteran character actors, both of whom had dead birds stuck on their <laughs> <laughs> Um They had already worked in Doctor Who, so... Uh, Valentine, uh, costume had already been established. So as he had the, the blackbird, then, um, lost his name? Cyril Luckham. Cyril. Uh, Cyril had already worked on Doctor Who, but had a lovely Panama hat. So I didn't, I didn't have any hand in the casting of them. They came to me already cast, but, um, costume then, concocted the White Guardian's hat. I had actually worked with both of them uh, on classic serials when I was production managing. 
so again, you you'd established uh, a rapport with them um, before. It w- it wasn't like coming to somebody that you had no previous knowledge of working with. Um, and uh, the dead birds a- again, you know, they will always be commented on, but. Uh, they, they were the, the Black Guardian's death. Uh, I think John Nathan Turner said, "That'll have the little, uh, the little Hoovians absolutely terrified as he as he went up in flames." It went up in flames. Yes, he ro- roasted um, Raven yes. by the end of it. Um, <laughs> and and then you had to you when you returned, you had a a, a big task because you had to introduce a new companion, get rid of another companion. Uh, go to Lanzarote, get rid of a robot that didn't work properly, um, shrink Anthony Ainley. Um, qu- quite a quite a, a, a big shopping list of things you had to do with Planet of Fire. Yeah. But Planet of Fire had actually uh, come about because uh, my husband and I took the children to Lanzarote one year. And I... Oh, no, we went on our own the first year. And... I thought how marvellous the the scenery was and the following year when we went back and took the children who who were early teens, uh, I took a whole lot of photographs without the youngsters in them uh, so that I could come back and lay 36 photographs along JNT's desk and say, uh, wonderful location. Troglodytes willing, how about it? Uh-huh. And he looked at the locations, and from there, the germ started uh, and germinated of how, how to get Lanzarote into the thing. I think Peter Grimwade's story had originally, Peter had conceived it as Greece uh, rather than uh, the Canaries. But it was adapted and turned into a Canaries. Um, but it, it wasn't very comfortable filming. I remember Nicola sliding down at one point, down a, a slope. And this pecan, the, the actual broken up volcanic stuff, is as sharp as anything. Uh, and I, I think she had to be sprayed with antiseptic when she got to the bottom of it. It looks. I mean, it looks painful. That scene. It's, uh, yes, it was. Um, the robot originally should have been out in on location with us, and by that time we knew that the robot uh, could cost hours in recording, and the idea of getting piquant and sand in its joints and making it even worse. That was why before before we even went into rehearsal, uh, the whole story had been adapted so that her father turned into the Silver Man. Um, yes, he painted Dallas Adams and brought him out instead. Yes, yes. Uh, so, that he, yes, there were lots of logistics to cope with. Um, but, again, a great deal of enjoyment to be got out of the situation. Well, look, I've, I've already um, 
well exceeded the time I promised to spend with you, so I, I could talk for hours. But um, I've got, I, so I would just quickly ask you to pick a, a, a favourite uh, experience on Doctor Who for you then. Um, the favourite. Oh, the favourite experience was probably uh, Nicola swimming in the, the bay, and we were all up on the top of the cliff. Uh, with a, a long lens, getting uh, her as she jumped in the sea, started swimming, then started screaming. And I hadn't realised that when I'd chosen the location, we were in the area which was a nude bathing area. So we managed to get there first thing in the morning and establish squatters' rights, as it were. And the next day was still perfectly acceptable. And suddenly, as she was screaming and yelling, this blonde Viking, Starkers, had heard the screaming and came running over the rocks around the end and jumped in the sea and was swimming towards her and she was screaming her head off. And I kept saying to the cameraman, is he in shot? And so we were able to keep shooting until the guy got about 50 yards from her and we roared, cut, and she stopped screaming and turned around and said, it's all right, we're filming, and pointed up to the top of the the cliff and uh, he turned around and and saw the camera at the top and raised his arm and uh, shook it at us because he'd been running across these, again, very sharp rocks. His, his feet must have been lacerated. Oh. But uh, I decided to stay well out of it and on top of the cliff rather than rushing down. I think, uh, I think the, the rest of the crew dashed down to mollify him, and I chickened out. That's director's privilege. Um, and uh, because you've kindly given your time um, for nothing and the, the listeners aren't paying for this, I asked them to uh, put their hands in their pockets for a charity that you nominate. So if you're going for a charity. That, that's lovely. I'd, I'd like the, our charity to be uh, Marie Curie. Uh, the reason being that four years ago I developed lung cancer and I've been extremely fortunate to uh, survive this length of time and Marie Curie do such extremely good work. A great force, and um, it's you're speaking to me um, because you're very generous, and also because it's Doctor Who's 50th anniversary this year. Um, and so, do you have a message for all the Doctor Who fans out there on this illustrious occasion? Keep watching, the Doctor can go on forever. Whoever thought of the changing from one character, one Doctor to the next? Uh, was brilliant. Uh, the Doctor will never die. I don't know how many um, incarnations he can go. I know there is a finite number, but um, it, it, it's just one of these tell me a story, and everybody loves a good story. Well, you've told us a number of good stories today, so Fiona Cumming, uh, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. And uh, thanks to him for waiting so patiently. I'm sorry I took that. I, I, I asked far more questions than I promised to.
My thanks to Fiona. Her charity is Marie Curie Cancer Care at www.mariecurie.org.uk. Marie Curie is M-A-R-I-E-C-U-R-I-E.org.uk. Please give if you can. Now, trivia hands amongst you might be able to guess the subject of the next podcast. He mops up the two classic series, Doctors, that Fiona didn't work with, and I managed to corner him during the same recording session as the one you have just heard. He has positive thoughts on John Nathan Turner, less positive ones uh, about the way that JNT was treated by the BBC, uh, and recalls making a cameo appearance in the show itself. That's next time, where once again we take the high road to Toby Haydoke's Who's Round. We'd welcome any feedback at uh, podcast at bigfinish.com, and you can find me online at www.tobyhaydoke.com. Do pop by. Until then, farewell. Uh, just a quick note. Um, Fiona has this lovely theory that because she did the changeover from Tom Baker into Peter Davison in Castrovalva. There's a clip of Tom Baker at the beginning, although used from Logopolis, although it is slightly re-edited with different music. Uh, that means she can say that she has worked with all five Doctors, which I think is fair enough. Uh, now, strictly speaking, of course, she didn't actually direct uh, Tom Baker live or whatever, but it's nice that we can go, Fiona worked on the first five uh, five Doctors. Uh, isn't that a good thing? So, um, if you want to go, oh, but actually, she didn't, strictly speaking, because of this, um, that's fine, but, but don't write in, because I know, and you know that I know, and Fiona really knows that you and I know that too, but it's just a bit of fun. So, um, save your wrists for something. No, I won't say that. <laughs> Sometimes I think you're probably the finest ship ever to have sailed the vortex. Oh, my word. So now we know. Now we know for sure. But why are they here, hmm? Why are all the doctors here? Hello, my dear. Doctor. What is it, Lissa? Here. Look. In the doll's house, what? Look through the window. You're in the TARDIS. How do you do? I beg your pardon. Oh, no need to. I'm the Doctor, and this is... I am Leela. All of them? They were you? Here we go, three minutes past five. 17 The 23rd of November, 1963. The 23rd of November, 1963. 59A, Barnsfield, Crescent, Totten, Hampshire. Crescent, Totten, Hampshire, England. Earth. Charlie, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We'll come back for you. You hear me, Charlie? Doctor, no! Appeared to be some kind of warning. All this cloak and dagger business. You're clearly up to no good. By all means, please do come out to play, Doctor. I'm waiting for you. Mm-hmm.